Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 159. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 24 through 27 and follow up with some thoughts about some uncommon literary devices. With Psalm 24, we finally have something upbeat, something transcendent. The world created by God belongs to God, and all who are with, quote, clean hands and a pure heart, who has not taken a false oath by my life or sworn deceitfully, are welcome to congregate on God's holy mountain. And as these upright people enter the gates, the poet encourages them, quote, O gates, lift up your heads, up high, you everlasting doors, so the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. In many congregations, this psalm is sung when the Torah is returned to the Ark on holy days and midweek. According to the Mishnah, Tractate Tamid 7.4, this mizmor was sung by the Levites on the first day of the week to start the week. Psalm 25 is designed as an acrostic. It's one of nine in all the psalms. This one is missing some letters, though, the vav and the kuf, and the bet is kind of tacked on to the end of the aleph, and I guess one could say the same is true of the vav tacked on to the end of hey, but the kuf in verse 19... Ah, I have no idea! The poet begins with one set of requests and pleas to another and rounds out with the praise and some acknowledgement of God's righteousness. And no psalm would be complete without a plea for help, beginning with a pay, which is out of sequence. Quote, O God, redeem Israel from all its distress. Psalm 26 picks up on the save me, save me theme with the poet professing his innocence publicly. Quote, Vindicate me, O Lord. For I have walked without blame. I have trusted in the Lord. I have not faltered. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. The poet uses a literary device known as litotes by listing all the things he did not do as a way of telling us what it is he did do. And thus, being innocent, he asks for divine protection. Quote, I walk without blame. Redeem me. Have mercy on me. Psalm 27 can easily be divided into two. The first part, verses 1 through 6, is a declaration of faith, expressing that faith in God in the third person. Quote, The Lord is my light and my help. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? The second part echoes the previous psalm and completely reverses the first part with a renewed request for protection, addressing God directly in the second person. Quote, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Have mercy on me. Answer me. What sense do you make of this reversal? I tend to think that the poet, behaving like most humans, vacillates from assurance to doubt and back to assurance. One can almost picture the concluding verse on a post-it note tacked to the mirror so you can see it when you brush your teeth. Quote, look to the Lord, be strong and of good courage. Oh, look to the Lord. In many congregations, this psalm is recited every day between the first of Elul through Yom Kippur, capturing the mood of penitence and seeking mercy from God for in this pivotal time before the big reckoning. And on that penitential note, here endeth the lesson. I did an episode some time ago 
episode 95 on logical fallacies, and I did that to point out some of the common errors folks make when making arguments. In this episode, I'd like to do a similar deep dive, but into literary devices. Yes, what's about to unfold is an admittedly obscure listicle, but having a handful of literary devices up your sleeve will definitely impress at parties, or at least help in Scrabble. And you know, that happens a lot. So I alluded to a literary device earlier, if you were listening closely. I talked about litities. It's a form of understatement. It's used to emphasize a point by stating a negative to further affirm a positive. And it will often come with a double negative, which apparently is a big thing up here in Canada, and I can't seem to wrap my head around. So you'll say, he's not bad looking, as a way of saying he's handsome. The poet did this in Psalm 26 by emphasizing through enumerating all the negative behaviors he's not doing how much of a good person he is. You know, there are those pedestrian, you know, literary devices like metaphor and simile, you know, the standard bearers of figurative language. You often fold the two up into one and just call them metaphor. But I want to highlight some of the weirder you know, off the beaten track ones that we don't usually use or we use, but we don't know what they're called. So you know that famous speech by Churchill. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. So that's called anaphora. It's when you start a whole run of sentences with a uh, similar word or phrase. The opposite of anaphora is when you end successive sentences with a word or phrase. That's called epistrophe. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. When you replace a word with another word that sounds the same but doesn't fit the context, that's called a malapropism. What gives, man? And now let us touch testicles and mate for life! Don't you mean tentacles? I know what I said! Of course you can't overlook onomatopoeia, a word that represents a sound it stands for by imitating it. Take bottle. It sounds like the sound water makes when it's being poured out of a bottle. The same is true for bottle in Hebrew, bakabuk, which is the sound water makes when it's being poured out, bakabuk, 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 bakabuk. My doctoral research dealt a lot with synecdoche. That's where you take the part as a representative for the whole, or vice versa. It's similar to metonym, where a related word is substituted for the actual thing it's referring to. So when you say, I need a hand... That's synecdoche. You're not actually asking for a hand. You're asking for a person with a hand to come and help you. A famous use of metonym is Edward Bulwer-Lytton's statement, the pen is mightier than the sword, where each part of the idiom refers to something else, pen referring to written words and the sword referring to violence. And before this episode gets any more ponderous than it already is, I want to wade into a hot debate I've been having of late about the meaning of a particular literary device, irony. Let me say the obligatory thing about irony. Whatever Alanis Morissette was writing about was not irony. It was coincidence. The only thing that is ironic about the song Ironic is that nothing in it is ironic. Okay, moving on. I have teenage daughters who use a particular form of irony on the daily, and I think it's important that we understand the important differences between irony 
and its more base cousin, sarcasm. So, irony is when you say something and it expresses the opposite of what you actually mean. It's like when you call your massive Newfoundland hound tiny. This is verbal irony. But there are two other types of irony in literature. Situational irony, when something happens that's the opposite of what was expected or intended to happen. The best example of this comes uh, from O. Henry's Gift of the Magi. The wife sells her most prized possession, her hair, to get her husband a Christmas present, a gold watch chain. Meanwhile, the husband sells his most dear possession, the gold watch, to get his wife a Christmas present, a set of expensive combs for her luxurious hair. And then there's dramatic irony, when the audience is aware of the true intentions or outcomes while the characters in the play, the movie, whatever, are not. As a result, certain actions and or events take on different meanings for the audience than they do for the characters involved. I guess you could say that Romeo and Juliet is just filled with them. Where Romeo, for example, comes along and he sees Juliet lying in the tomb. We know she's feigning death, but Romeo doesn't. So he's overwhelmed by his love for Juliet and her death, so he pledges to kill himself. And as part of this pledge, he notes how Juliet appears so beautiful and untouched by death, which is actually true because, you know, she's not dead. She's just asleep. Oh, the irony. So where does sarcasm fit into all this? I think one of the biggest differences between sarcasm and irony is that the former really works best out loud. It's hard to transmit sarcasm on the page. Folks in Reddit have uh, come up with a slash S convention um, to sort of indicate that what you wrote before that was sarcastic, but it's really the delivery that sells it. Sarcasm, it could be said, is irony with a sneer. Irony tends to reflect on events and situations, not people. It's a statement of fact. Sarcasm is all about the dig, the put-down, the snarky repost. It aims to wound by pointing out faults and foibles. Irony is not necessarily ha-ha-ha funny, but it's more odd or quirky. Imagine a firehouse burning to the ground. I don't think you'd stand there and laugh, but it's an odd image. Bill Hillman, the author of multiple books, about how not to get gored by bulls was the only non-Spaniard to get gored in the 2014 running of the bulls in Pamplona. Anybody else feel like a little eagle when I mention my friend, Bigus. Bigus. There's really nothing ironic about that. That's just funny. Anyway, where were we? Oh, yes. So sarcasm, when delivered well can also evoke a laugh. Well, what about us? I mean, who's going to keep after us and make us linguini and, and tell us stories about Sicily? I don't know, Rose. Maybe Mary Poppins has an Italian cousin. Dorothy really could land those zingers. So, in a sense, Lytatis, the literary device that launched this episode, is also a form of irony, which is not beyond the wheelhouse of the poet, who indulges in irony often, in Psalms. He's no Ecclesiastes, but he lands. Well, at least I think so. For me, it's an effective device, but I often wonder if it gets the message across. As I have found on numerous occasions, sometimes you think you're effectively communicating when in actuality you're just being too clever for your own good. And I've never been accused of doing that. No, no, no. Never, ever, ever, ever. Hey! 
If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 160, when we continue in Psalms with chapters 28 through 31.